Hello, 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 and welcome back to our returning listeners to the Global in the Granite State podcast, a program of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire. For those who do not know yet, my name is Tim Horgan, and I am the Executive Director at the Council, as well as your be-all and end-all for this podcast. I have been really excited at the engagement that we have been getting with these episodes this year, with three episodes having been listened to over 1,100 times each, and all episodes being heard over 7,500 times. Our global reach has become impressive, with people tuning in from 57 different countries. I want to thank you all for being part of this global effort to engage in in-depth discussions on complex global issues. We have another great discussion lined up for you today, but first, I just wanted to point you to a couple of definitions we have in the show description about some terminology. I won't go too deep into it, but it will help you to better understand the difference in terms between asylee, refugee, migrant, and immigrant, which can help you contextualize some of this discussion. Also, I do want to ask that anyone who has enjoyed even just one of our episodes to consider supporting the work of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire. We are a small nonprofit and can only continue these great programs with your help. Take a moment to click on over to our webpage using the link in this show's description and go ahead and make a donation. Every little bit helps. With that, let's get started. When the GDP per capita is below $8,000, people emigrate because they cannot find enough jobs or economic opportunities to create a livelihood for themselves. This is Mariana Campero, a non-resident senior associate in the Americas program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. She is also the host of her own podcast, Mexico Matters, which is a program of CSIS. Her past experiences include working as the CEO of the Mexican Council on Foreign Relations, COMEXI, and a frequent guest for TV and radio programs. She joined me to discuss the issue of migration from Central America and beyond through her home country of Mexico into the United States. So, you know, there's sort of that threshold that uh, this study identified, you know, that people that have less than $8,000 a year per capita, take a chance, take a chance to go somewhere else. Immigration to the United States from Latin America has a long history and has been a major focus of many political discussions, particularly in the past 20 years or so. The debate tends to focus on the people who have come to the U.S. already and what should be done with them. Should they be given some sort of protective status Should they all be deported back to their home countries if they are in the United States without proper documentation? That is not what we are looking at here today. Instead, we are talking about what drives people to make this journey and what dangers they face along the way. Many people have heard about the Northern Triangle countries, but not many fully understand which countries they are, the challenges they are facing, and what can be done to build better functioning states in the region. 
Okay, the Northern Triangle is composed of three countries, Guatemala, which is, you know, the border with Mexico, it's uh, Honduras and El Salvador. Roughly together, they have like 34 million people and their GDP per capita, nominal GDP, it's around 2,500 to 5,000 US dollars. You know, it is a region plagued by corruption, very poor economic possibilities. There's very little infrastructure. They've been hit hard recently in Guatemala, for example, with a drought. So their agricultural land has been, you know, unable to produce enough food to feed its own population. But it's a region plagued with corruption. It's plagued with violence, with gangs. The business community really have not been able to create any prosperity other than for themselves, I would say. And so, you know, it is a very challenging situation. On top of this, there are many issues that these countries face. All the factors are working together to drive people from their homes in search of a better, safer, more prosperous life. There are many push factors, right? And, you know, we just talked about a few of them. The current economic conditions is one of them. But, you know, the other push factors is the reality that crime and gangs and dealers, I mean, narco-trafficking, you know, these are some of the roots of smugglers into the United States. And the narco traffickers have evolved in the sense that they're not only trafficking drugs and trying to send drugs into the United States, but they're also trafficking with people. And their businesses have evolved into other areas of crime. And that, of course, in countries that you don't have solid institutions, a justice system and a criminal system that works, when you have these very powerful gangs and dealers, the population is, is very vulnerable. You know, for example, there are many stories and it's documented of families, you know, that have teenagers, teenage boys or teenage girls that are forced to join these gangs. And, you know, families are, of course, terrified because once you enter one of these gangs, the likelihood that you will survive is very low. You know, sort of that is one of the reasons why people migrate and seek asylum because, you know, they risk for their lives if they stayed in their home countries. So there are many push factors. Uh, Corruption is one of them. And when we say corruption, sometimes it's sort of very hard to understand how does that affect day-to-day people. And one very important thing is extortion. So if you have, for example, a little business that, you know, you just sell tacos on the street, there are these gangs that pass every day or every week or every month and they demand payment. So either you pay or they either burn or threaten your life or threaten the life of another family member. So extortion, it costs a lot of money for these people and they have to do it either protections, but sometimes also they decide, you know, this is just not worth it. They sell whatever they can sell and they decide to move. And of course, you know, natural disasters, as we said, 
it is a region prone to hurricanes. It is a region prone to earthquakes. It is a region prone to flooding. And that devastates the savings of these people. So there are many push factors. And of course, the other is that because there is no infrastructure, there is no enough electricity or energy to attract manufacturing or businesses, the cost of opening a big plant in these countries is enormous. It is really the chicken and the egg. How can we attract investment if we don't have the infrastructure and we don't have the conditions? And at the same time, without investment, there's no way that these people are going to be able to have a livelihood that will allow them to prefer to stay in their own countries. As you can see, the people who live in these countries are experiencing some pretty terrible things on a daily basis. From hunger to violence to devastation, it is no wonder they are interested in leaving their country. However, there is one big caveat to explore here. This kind of trip does not come cheap and is not something undertaken lightly. Most estimates indicate that it costs people around $10,000 to make the trip from Central America to the U.S. border, and it's certainly not a first-class trip on an airplane. It is not the poorest of the poorest that are emigrating. It is really a section. You know, we consider it poor, but for these countries, when you have a GDP per capita of $2,500, $10,000 is a lot of money. We really have a lot of factors that are combining here, and I don't see how we can really tackle these root causes. The Biden administration recently announced a program of $4 billion to try to tackle the root causes of the region, and they also want to encourage investment. I hope that in this occasion, it will have a different result, but something similar has been tried before, and it certainly hasn't worked. We will not be able to attract investment there or in any other country, certainly not in Mexico, if we don't create the economic conditions to attract investment and to give investors the certainty that the rules of the game will not be changed and that there will be permanence of those rules. If there is no near-term solution to the challenges that these countries face, it is important to next understand why these people migrate to the U.S., there's no one who's forcing them to come here, and there may very well be other countries more willing to take them in, or at the very least, where cultural assimilation would be easier. The United States is the largest, most innovative, attractive economy and democracy in the world. So no doubt, it is a, an enormous pull factor. Recently, after the pandemic, when we see these countries that are devastated, and at the same time, because of your economy, because of the fiscal stimulus, because of you know, the, your innovation and your need for labor, we talk about the infrastructure bill that is going to be passed in the U.S., but that will add trillions and trillions of dollars into the economy and will create a huge demand for labor. I was just reading the unfilled jobs that the U.S. economy has, and it's enormous. And migration, the pull factors are, of course, the economy and the possibility of making some money that I can survive myself, but send back home 
for my family. So that is an enormous factor. The other enormous pull factor that the U.S. has is because migrants tend to follow routes that have created before. And the United States being the most welcoming country in the world for migrants, traditionally you were born that way. There are many routes that have already been established, right? Now there are Mexican communities that live all the way up in your northern border. And usually sort of that's how the message is sent is, hey, I am living in this community up in Maine or in New Hampshire where you are. And they say, you know, there's a job opportunity. Or if you come, you'll be able to find a job. And they don't usually go alone. They usually sort of tend to follow some other members from their own communities that have already been established there. So that is another pull factor. You talked about democracy. Well, of course, you tend to underestimate the beauty and the value of being able to walk on the street without risking for your life. These people know that despite of the horrible journey, despite the fact that, you know, I may be raped in the process and robbed and sold, if I make it to the United States, it is a price that I'm willing to pay. It is devastating to, to realize that, but realities are realities. Speaking of migration, filling a need for U.S. labor, there's a long history of ties between the U.S. and Mexico slash Central America in terms of filling that need when it is there. A perfect example of this is the Braceros program between the U.S. and Mexico. Started in 1942 as a way to fill agricultural jobs in a time of great need, Mexican men were allowed to come and work the fields of these farms with the expectation that they would return to Mexico at the end of the season. This arrangement worked out very well until it was ended in 1964, when farm mechanization reduced the need for cheap labor. Fast forward to today, and most of the world's advanced economies are experiencing rapidly aging populations. The U.S. is a major exception to this, as the inflow of migrants who are typically younger helped to fill the gaps left by a lower birth rate than in decades past. It would seem that there is a great opportunity for immigration reform to encourage healthy inflows of people who can help replenish the workforce. How that is done is certainly up for political debate. But I also think that the economic needs of the United States can be fulfilled with something similar to the Braceros program in the sense that recognizes that you guys need people, but that you don't want them to stay there permanently. And that also these people usually don't want to stay there permanently. They want to come back home with their families and their communities. And, you know, I believe that something like that would certainly remove a lot of the pressure that we have right now with all of these economic migrants that we're seeing at, at the border. You also have a need for very skilled technological migration. And there is a huge demand from business people to increase your number of H-1B visas. And so every country, right, has a need and there should be a way for you to 
control the border, satisfy your needs, while at the same time be true to your humanitarian values and, you know, have a quota, have a quota that you as a country are comfortable with. Getting back to the understanding of why people are making this journey, it is helpful to see the challenges that they face along the way. These are well-known dangers, and yet many people still undertake this trip knowing what may very well happen to them while on this journey. Just remember, people are paying around $10,000 to do this, and they already know these risks. To me, this really drives home how desperate their situation must really be. It is famous, you know, that the route from the southern border to the northern border is a very dangerous journey. Unfortunately, many of these people are vulnerable to the polleros or human smugglers to whom they pay up to $6,000, up to $10,000 for the journey. But sometimes also these uh, polleros, you know, abuse them. It is said that there is a train that is called La Bestia in Mexico, in which a lot of these migrants from the south take to travel to northern Mexico. And, you know, it is called La Bestia because it's like the beast, right? People know that it is a very dangerous, very, very dangerous trip. Women are usually raped. Actually, it is known that you pay the Mexican price. And it is that women are raped in the journey. But also people and women are sold in the slavery market. Uh, Sometimes they are asked to carry drugs with them so that when they make it to the United States, somebody else will be waiting for them on the other side. So it is not a pretty journey at all. And recently, when we talk about the Haitians, you know, I was just reading about their journey. And uh, usually they're coming, a lot of the Haitians that apprehended came from Chile or from Brazil. And imagine that journey. They arrived, a lot of them arrived in Colombia, and they take a little boat to Panama. And then in Panama, they have to go into the jungle where, you know, they're also fall prey of human traffickers and smugglers, in addition to all of the risks of being in the jungle on your own without a lot of food to carry or or water and any animal protection. And here comes the kicker, right? These are not just numbers to be talked about in generalities as they are in so many ways, including during this discussion. But these are real people with real hopes and real aspirations. It's a father with a two-year-old baby carrying it through the whole journey, you know, it's just heartbreaking. Or kids on their own. I mean, to me that as a mother, as a woman, I just imagine how dire my situation has to be in Mexico or in Central America, that I rather my kid takes the chance than for sure I know if he stays with me, he might die that I'd rather take the chance for him to arrive in the United States because if he arrives there as an unaccompanied minor, at least the United States will give him a better chance to life. I mean, it's, it's heartbreaking. As with any conversation about migration, one cannot ignore the impact of U.S. border and immigration policy and the impact that has on people's perceptions of the U.S., 
the likelihood that they can enter, and the requirements people must meet before they are able to enter the country legally. It is a difficult challenge to balance, as seeming too open encourages more people to make this dangerous journey, while too harsh of policies harm the most vulnerable. In the past 20 years, border security, in the wake of the 9-11 attacks, has taken a front seat in these discussions, really ramping up under the Trump administration and its promise to build the wall. Taking that as a backdrop, where are we now? Undoubtedly, the fact that during the Obama administration, it is when we started to see thousands of unaccompanied minors show up at the border, surprising the world. And Obama was one of the presidents that deported the most people uh, back to either to Mexico or uh, to their home country. And then during the Trump administration, he imposed some policies that, of course, were criticized because the images of children detained at the border and kept in the detention centers without their families were a surprise to everybody. And they were considered understandably inhumane and were vastly criticized. And the Biden administration uh, rolled back some of the Trump policies. You know, they reviewed the asylum policies, increased the number of refugees, they stopped the construction of the wall, they ended the so-called Remain in Mexico program, and they ended the family separation program. One of the facts of this is that these changes were perceived as not an invitation, maybe, but as a risk worth taking. Because if I am detained, my son is not going to be put in this detention centers and the family is not going to be separated. You know, sort of there is a policy that if a children uh, arrives into the United States, they will be allowed to do the process while staying in the United States, they're not returned or sent back to Mexico. So, of course, you know, sort of right or wrong, but it is being interpreted as maybe not a welcome sign, but as a change of posture and people are taking the risk. Unaccompanied minors, in the last data that I saw from the summer, there were like approximately 20,000 that appeared in July unaccompanied minors, you know, they are big numbers and they're putting a lot of stress in, in your system because if you keep them, how can you keep them without putting them in these detention centers? You know, it requires a lot, a lot of work from the nonprofits, from the government, from border patrols to really sort of be able to manage all of these minors that are showing up. And then going through their process and giving them asylum, putting them in families, finding a family member in, in, you know, in the United States. It is a very complicated situation. I think things sometimes fall into the cracks, right? You know, sort of, it's, you know, it's very difficult to manage. Of course, we all saw the terrible images coming out of Texas not too long ago of the Haitians who were living under a bridge on the border before the U.S. government came to break the encampment up. Many people were sent straight back to Haiti, while others had valid claims for asylum that must be adjudicated. But this was not only an issue for the U.S. to deal with, as many of these people first came to Mexico. As is clear 
Mexico cannot be forgotten in this type of discussion and the roles that they can and do play. I think Mexico has a big challenge because we used to be a country that expels people. Then we became a transit country. And that, of course, causes some uh, challenges, right, for our own system. And now we're not only expelling a transit, but we're also a receiver. You know, there are many of the uh, Haitians that uh, are currently in Mexico that have applied to receive asylum in Mexico. I was just reading at some numbers. We have already received 800,000 asylum petitions this year, uh, which is obviously putting tremendous stress into our own system, which is a system that certainly doesn't have the resources economically or of the people that the U.S. system has. So, you know, sometimes these people are detained at the southern border, but our southern border is a very, very porous. There's jungle. It is not easy border. And Lopez Obrador uh, was committed with the Trump administration to stop some of the flow to the northern border. And there were, before the Haitian situation exploded in the U.S., it was in Mexico. They were in a place in Chiapas, which Chiapas, by the way, is the poorest state in Mexico. And there is a place called Tapachula, where these people are arrive and they have to apply uh, for asylum. In Mexico, the law is when you apply, you have to stay in the state where you applied. So, you know, if they apply in Chiapas, they should not go to other state. But, you know, because the system was overwhelmed and no resources, that these, these Haitians started to become desperate because they cannot work. So they couldn't make enough money to, to survive. And there was not enough government assistance. So they just started their journey north. And there were some horrible images, like the images that we saw in the United States that occurred in Mexico with the Mexican Guardia Nacional abusing, you know, there was this image that circulated around Mexico and caused a lot of problems for Lopez Obrador of this uh, Haitian father carrying his little baby abused by the Guardia Nacional. Mexico is trying to control the situation in our southern border because we, we agreed with the United States, but also because it is becoming a problem for ourselves. A lot of these Haitians, when they're now returned from the United States, uh, arrived in Monterrey, which is in the north, and it's a very prosperous city, and they want to stay there. There are the conditions for them to find jobs, but it will certainly create a lot of stress in the system right now in, you know, sort of their churches that are putting up temporary beds to, to receive them. But a lot are, of them are in the streets. They're making sort of the whole situation unsafe for themselves because they don't know if you ha they have COVID or not. They don't have uh, bathrooms or a roof. It is creating a big social stress in the places in Mexico where they are either waiting for the U.S. to adjudicate their, their cases 
or, you know, just to stay and find a, a job in Mexico. And as we said, you know, right now, Mexico is also going through a, a, a difficult situation. But, you know, for them, Mexico is better. It might not be the United States, but it's better than the places where they're coming from. So they're also trying to trying to take a chance. I want to thank Mariana Campero for joining me for this great and insightful conversation. Of course, there are no easy answers for anyone in this story, but understanding and humanizing these people is one step we can all take. Thank you all so much for listening in. I really appreciate your interest in our work and hope that you find it insightful, engaging, and valuable. This has been the Global in the Granite State podcast, a program of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire. As always, our theme music is Admin by A.A. Alto, and our interlude music is Refugee by Arcade Island. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and leave us a comment on what you would like to hear about next. <laughs>